welcome back, everybody. I'm Jeff Cross, your host of Friends with Employee Benefits and HR. And first off, I, I want to reiterate how much we appreciate all of you, our listeners. Uh, as leaders and human resource professionals, you've been through a lot. We know you've been putting in the extra time to support both your employees working from home and the essential workers sacrificing for us every day. <clears throat> we, we do sincerely thank you for supporting your employees' well-being and, and finding ways to keep them engaged as we all navigate through this crisis and, and try to figure out you know, what's next, what's the new normal gonna look like. So again, can't thank you enough for all of that, everything you're doing to kind of keep the trains on the track. With that being said, we're very excited to have with us today, uh, Duncan Stewart, who is the New England president for Aetna. Duncan, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Appreciate your time. I know you're very busy, so we're just going to jump right into the uh, to to the questions that we have for you. And we, you know, let's just address the uh, the elephant in the room right away, which is COVID nineteen. So, can you kind of share with us some of the things that Aetna has done in response to this coronavirus pandemic? I sure can, Jeff. And I um I was uh, anxious for a second there when you said the elephant in the room, COVID nineteen. If you were going to asked me if this was a COVID-19 beard, um, which for, for the record, if not, I've, I've had this for at least five years, so it- uh, my, my beard is an NHL playoff beard. From last year or anticipating this year? <laughs> from, from this year, yeah. In lieu of. <laughs> well, good. Yeah, ho ho hopefully we'll, we'll see some action, but who knows. So relative to, to our organization's response to COVID-19, I guess I would say we've done this in a few different ways. I think like most companies, I think we've, you know, the top priority was really the health and safety of our own colleagues. And as you can imagine, at Aetna, you know, that's complicated enough, but, but you know, being part of CVS Health, there's a variety of different businesses that we're in that, that make it a little bit more challenging to think about that, particularly given some people in the front lines and so forth. But then really trying to figure out what we do for, for members and for customers. And that includes figuring out how do we maintain continuity of our business operations. And that in of itself is, is you know, relatively complex. Although I think just the, the, the scale that we had gave us some advantages, you know, when, when uh, sending people home, we already had so many people prepared to work from home, but also planning, you know, for the, the potential office closures and so forth. We, we have the ability to load balance work. Much of that didn't end up happening. Um, but as you might imagine, we had a fairly robust plan in place for a variety of reasons, obviously for customers, but also for providers who are struggling in this time. From a cash flow perspective, we wanted to make sure that we continue to pay them on time and pay them as quickly as we could um, for the claims that, that, that are coming in. Um, just so that we can do something to try to maintain some amount of their cash flow while they have a lot of their um, their business shut down. We also made a number of adjustments for plan sponsors. Uh, we made telemedicine free uh, from the get-go, and that was not just COVID-related. That's uh, um, that's essentially across the board for for any diagnosis. Really, just encouraging telemedicine. We've we've seen a proliferation of that um, during this time for sure waived cost sharing for uh, coronavirus testing as well as you know the associated doctor visits for treatment for inpatient admissions um, we did the same uh, you know lots of crisis support um, leveraging some of our, our EAP resources and, and so forth to uh, to make sure that we were there for customers who needed that type of support 
um, free delivery on CVS pharmacy prescriptions, uh, which I think is a really key one. As you might imagine, in the midst of this large increase in the number of folks having their prescriptions delivered as opposed to going and picking them up. This also in includes things like cold chain delivery. So, you know, things that need to be kept at a certain temperature, being able to deliver those prescriptions to people, uh, for example, with diabetes and so forth. One of the other interesting things I think that's important in this is, is just sort of the you know, the coming together of CVS Health and Aetna, we were in a position where, where we could leverage resources from, from, from both. So one other thing that we did is we created this, this Healing Better package, which is essentially a package of supplies that we would ship to people when they were returning home after an inpatient admission for coronavirus. And this would just be supplies of things that are sort of, you know, relatively intuitive that you, you'd know that they would, would want and need. Things like, you know, uh, disinfectant wipes, um, hand sanitizer, and a number of other medications that might be, you know, sort of helpful from a, a symptom perspective as they as they continue to, you know, re recuperate at home. So that that was a was a really um, interesting thing that we we added in to to try to figure out what are the what are the ways all of the ways that we can leverage all of our assets to support the people um, at a time when they need it the most. I guess you know a couple of other one other thing I guess I'd mention is that we we also created a a model where we would proactively reach out to um, members who were either, you know, from a, a demographic perspective, um, you know, more at risk. So you're thinking folks that are, are elderly are generally more at risk. Um, that said, um, you also have hotspots, as, as has been well noted in the media. Um, so we're combining all of those data, including data from the CDC, and figuring out how do we reach out to people and engage with people, particularly those with comorbid conditions to try to continue to educate them on, um, you know, what they should and shouldn't do in order to make sure that, uh, that we, we try to minimize the number of people that actually um, contract COVID. So um, mm. I know it was a little bit of a whirlwind tour, but that, that's, um, yeah. that, that's a number of things that we, we, we did in the immediate aftermath. Um, so that outreach to what, what you would consider high-risk high members or those who are in hot spots, was that, was, what does that look like? Kind of telephonic or, or how are you kind of trying to connect with them? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a variety of different, certainly telephonic, you know, particularly, you know, I, I think these days, and we'll probably get into this uh, in a little while, you know, you think about the ways that you can engage with um, members, it's it's really important to try to figure out what channel do you engage with people, um, mm -hmm. and what channel is going to be most effective to engage with people. Um, not necessarily an easy question to answer, but there are also sort of, uh, you know, general um, inferences you can draw. So, you know, the, the, the telephone, for instance, I, I would be the first to admit, I'm hard to reach by phone. Um, unless I know who it is that's calling, I'm, I'm probably not going to answer. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of the, the population, uh, you know, particularly in the commercial space, uh, sort of falls into that. Um, it's not necessarily as true as, as you get to folks that are, are sort of um, older as a general statement our Medicare plans and so forth, it, it's, it's somewhat easier to engage with people um, via telephone still. Um, that said, it'll be interesting to see what the result of, of COVID-19 is in terms of how people change their preferences in, in terms of, of, of simply something like that, like, like communication preferences. So, so partly it is uh, telephonic, mm -hmm. um, but I would say also um, there's a number of other avenues that, that, that we've been exploring, things like email, um, still like in, in certain instances I, it's surprising to me personally but 
you know, when you really think about it, it's not that surprising in some ways that even postcards and snail mail can still be very effective for certain certain types of people. So we've really got to try to run the gamut. And a uh, lot of work lately outside of COVID to figure out um, how do we track people's communication preferences and so that we know what works for them and we don't bother them with other other methods that, that aren't effective. Yeah, one, one size does not fit all and you've got a strategy that's using multiple channels to, to try to kind of solve for that, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. You early on mentioned the provider community as a, a key stakeholder and, and I think a lot of people might sometimes forget that, that they're impacted by this in a big way as well and as you said, a lot of them are, 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 are not able to see their patients uh, right now, depending on the specialty and the practice. And so how are those conversations going and what, if anything, can you do to kind of support providers through this? Yeah, you know, Jeff, it's a, it's a great question. Those are, you know, those are, those are difficult conversations right now um, in a lot of ways. I, so many providers, um, and we'll focus on Connecticut, I've, I've talked to provider systems across the state, uh, both the both the at the very largest end and, and down to the you know the, the smaller end and community hospitals and physician practices and so forth. And um, you know there's a there's a common thread there um, that they uh, when you think about the fact it was roughly middle of March um, that most of them all of a sudden had to cancel all elective procedures and effectively shut down most office visits um, un unless they were absolutely critical. Um, so a huge portion of their business has gotten, you know, shut down. And at the very same time, what they've been forced to do is to, to sort of turn their entire business model upside down and figure out how do I, how do I reorganize um, first and foremost for COVID? Um, so, uh, you know, how do I create beds? How do I make sure I have PPE? That's been mm. a huge concern. It's been well publicized. Um, how do I bring in uh, enough ventilators? What if there's a surge here? What if there is um, a surge in the number of my own employees that are impacted by COVID and therefore need to stay home? Um, some of these folks obviously it became even more problematic when um, the schools shut down and a lot of the, the people who work you know, at health systems and treat patients around the front lines are people whose kids are at home and need attention from homeschooling. And so, there was sort of this, this wave of anxiety, uh, very appropriate anxiety, um, as they scrambled to figure out how do we create capacity for what could be um, a, a very, very large um, uh, influx of COVID patients that could, could certainly strain the system. And at the same time, you have um, you know, a lot of the physicians very concerned, appropriately, I would, I would add, um, that they, they want to treat patients um, and they have patients with ongoing chronic diseases that aren't going mm. away. Um, there are things that, that obviously happen, um, you know, uh, cardiac events uh, don't stop happening simply because of COVID. So there, there was just a lot of reorganization and, and I think some of the common threads are providers are essentially saying, I'm shutting down, you know, half or more of my own revenue, um, you know, depending on, on, on who it is. And I'm also spending millions of dollars per month, um, and in some instances, tens of millions of dollars per month, trying to figure out how to um, very, very quickly and rapidly reshape my business model. And, and that's complicated math uh, when it comes to, uh, comes to running a hospital. So that's, uh, um, that's really difficult. That's one of the reasons I think that we went out of our way to try to figure out um, for the claims that we're getting, 
how do we continue to to pay them as quickly as we can so that we're we're not really immediately dipping into the revenue um you know with the 30 day average of a 30 day lag let's say um i think for us we're paying virtually everything in 15 days at the moment but um you know how do we make sure that there's no drop off in our business continuity so that it continues to impact a, a group of constituents who are been great partners of ours for so many years so yeah. Um, and then, of course, the obvious, you know, relaxing of prior authorization requirements and things, making some things easier for them in the near term um, while they're in the midst of dealing with a pandemic is, is uh, you know, not only something that, you know, the state of Connecticut asked people to do, but um, I think there are a number of us that were, were sort of out ahead and sort of said we, we need to do some things to, to relax certain requirements so that it's easier for folks to, 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 to handle the, the crisis in front of them. Yeah, it was just the right thing to do, and you guys rose to the occasion there. Before we get off of COVID, I, I, one more question on that, if you don't mind, and I don't want it to consume this entire episode, but do, do you have any, do your actuaries have any estimates yet as to kind of long-term trend impact or, you know, 12, 18-month impact to, to uh, trends, pricing trends? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, I I'll say the the way that we've handled that is that we actually created a, a, a model that we um, are, are doing sort of via, you know, WebEx video conferences like this to uh, um, to walk through with customers. And it, it really varies depending on some of the assumptions that you put in. Um, and I think that, you know, as, as a broad statement, um, it's, it's probably not that helpful to give the sort of this enormously wide range of, of possibilities. Mm. I would say, though, that, that, that generally speaking, as a result of the, the uh, cancellation or at least postponement of so many elective procedures and office visits and so forth, I think what we do expect to see is, is somewhat of a dip, obviously, in those services, um, but a dip overall, what becomes more challenging to figure out for an individual customer right now is, is sort of um, how many folks will they have that get COVID and then get it to the point where they need to be inpatient and those costs impact them. So we do have a number of models and we've been working with customers and, um, and brokers uh, alike to, to figure out how, how, do we, how do we start to project this for people. Um, there's part of me though that says that this is still a range and that, that it's gonna take a little bit longer for figuring out duration. And it's also gonna take a little bit of time to figure out, you know, to what degree is there a second wave of this? Um, and what's the timing of that? And what are those hotspots um, before we truly know what the longer term impact is gonna be? I would add though, that I do think it's, it's fair to say that all of us should be thinking about the strain that this has been put on, put on the, 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 the provider side. And the fact that, that that they are going to be really anxious to figure out how to bring some stability back to their organizations financially looking ahead. Yeah, and, and don't worry, you're not alone. We've yet to find a, a carrier to kind of put a <laughs> to put a number out there or even a range of of what uh, it is a moving target. We've got our own models as well at One Digital, and based on you know geography and industry and so in demographics of, of the group and but it's it's the data is just changing daily you know and it is very very difficult to predict all right look, well let's get off of uh COVID. i think people have been uh, a little bit overwhelmed with coronavirus talk but we couldn't ignore it but let's move on because you know i know duncan that you know pre-coronavirus pandemic that aetna was working on 
this, uh, you know, long-term problem of cost of care, you know, cost of health insurance, which is driven by the cost of the health care itself. And, um, you know, all of our clients, um, you know, they want to offer competitive health insurance programs, but they don't want to break the bank. And, and they want to kind of get out from these high single digit, low double digit trends that we've been seeing for as long as I frankly can remember. And, and so, you know, at the end of the day, as I said, the co- cost of health, health insurance is driven by the underlying cost of care. So talk a little bit about what Aetna has been doing and continues to do. I, I want people to rest assured you're not, you haven't stopped your core mission of delivering value and delivering uh, and, and delivering healthcare at, a, at, a, at an affordable price, right? So, um, so what are you doing to tackle that unit cost? Talk a little bit about your accountable care strategy, you know, pay for performance, move to value, and the kind of work that Aetna is doing around those initiatives. So, and, and you're right, we, and, and I'm sure others have been, been focused on this for a long time. I will tell you, I, I think if you go back far enough, it, it's sort of interesting in, in, in our business sort of many years ago, I think the idea was as long as you weren't paying remarkably more than somebody else, you could be competitive and that was okay. And I, I'm, I'm very glad to say that I think attitudes have changed um, entirely on that. And, you know, the way that I view it is that, you know, from a, a cost perspective, really, it's imperative that that all of us work together, um, all the constituents in, in, in the system actually kind of get together and, and figure out how do we find some common ground because we can't all continue to be uh, responsible for wage stagnation because the cost of healthcare is going up so much. And, you know, I, I, I think that that one of the results of, of what's going on in the world around us right now may be that people start to have more of a focus on this and that we really can start to uh, more meaningfully have conversations and have more conversations with larger numbers of employers um, and consumers alike um, in terms of what does value mean and, and, and how do we create that? You know, people have been talking for years about aligning incentives and uh, I don't I don't think that's it feels like that's a phrase that's gotten beaten to death, but at the same time, I, I, I also don't know that many of us have necessarily sort of, you know, been pleased with how rapidly that that's happened or are sort of high-fiving and saying that we were declaring victory. I think that there's some very positive things that we've done in Connecticut specifically that really get to the heart of the question that you're asking. We have several partners that are, are part of a um, product, um, our Aetna Whole Health of Connecticut product, a product that we sell sort of uniquely with this ACO structure. So we really encourage people to use uh, certain providers and, and obviously those providers are, are incented to sort of manage the care of the patients that they're responsible for or who are attributed to them. I think the real key in any of these types of arrangements though, it's not so much that you have these arrangements or that you can claim I have X many ACOs because quite honestly, you know, our whole industry has been running around for years trying to talk about who had the most ACOs. Having an ACO by, by itself, just an ACO deal um, is, is probably not particularly meaningful. And in fact, if we were being honest, there's a number of ACO deals that, that stretch across the country, either for us or our competitors that are, are, are really not working and doing any of the things that they were originally intended to. Where we really need to focus is on the deals and the partners that are actually ready and are committed to trying to deliver high quality care in a more efficient manner. Um, and we need to try to sort of figure out 
how do we make that accretive or each year it's better than the year before and uh, that we're driving down costs. And the way to do that, um, you may hear me use this phrase sort of in, in other topics that may come up later, but it, it's really, in many ways, I always tell people data is the real win, which I think is tough. It's tough for uh, a lot of customers, particularly since this isn't their business, to sort of figure out, like, what are the differences in, in data and why should that be meaningful to me? Um, but at the end of the day, if you're delivering data in a timely fashion to your provider partners, actionable data that they can then take and do something with so that, that you know, a, a primary care, for example, knows who just went to the ER and he, knows, he or she knows why they went there, why their patient was there. And, you know, is there a way to sort of prevent that from happening again? Is there something way that they can intervene? And they're making sure that you're, you're delivering that in, in, in either real or, or near real time. Um, for, for, for certain types of, of scenarios, uh, that can be very, very powerful. Um, but sim me simply saying I have an ACO deal doesn't mean that that's going on. So uh, to me, I, I think the way that we, we really make a dent in this is by figuring out how to sit down and partner with pr the right providers um, and exchange data and figure out what are the ways that they are going to use that data with the way that they're their, their uh, physician practices are, are structured, um, and what are the things that we can do to try to um, continue to improve outcomes? Yeah, uh, and what you're saying, to paraphrase, I think what I heard is, is one of the criteria for being one of those right providers uh, that's going to engage in a meaningful in, in a meaningful and really impactful accountable care organization is their willingness to look at the data. Uh, and to take action based on the data, and and that that's is that kind of Duncan a relatively new thing for the provider community um, to you know to 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 access data and to use it to kind of change the way they're delivering care. Yeah, I guess it all depends on the definition of relative, right? But I I think relatively new. Um, yeah, last 10 years. I mean, if, if you kind of yeah. think back to, you know. 10 years is definitely fair, yeah. And I, I would say it's like anything else. And I think this applies to everything. And this is the way that, that all of us should be thinking about our business. It's a whole lot better today than it was 10 years ago. And, and the, the data and the exchange of data and the partnership is better today than it was one year ago. And, you know, regardless of whether we're talking about this or any number of other topics, like how we interact with consumers or, or, or other you know, disease-specific type discussions. Um, everything that we do should be considered iterative. In so far as I, I feel like this is an industry, uh, I'd be curious if you agree. For so many years, when we've talked about things, we've sort of tried to promote. We do X, Y, and Z to solve this problem. Look, we've got it solved, and that program then stayed sort of the same program as it was five years ago. Um, you know, it, it it stayed the same for five years. My view is is that uh, uh, nothing that we do like that should be the same tomorrow as it is today, and we should we should be constantly looking for ways to improve. And there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from other industries to that end. I think that's a great point, and I do agree with that, Duncan. Uh, if you think about it, it was you know I don't know 25 years ago, maybe it was the the advent of the the HMO, right? Oh, you know it, it's the HMO, and that and so we kind of the industry seemed to rest on the HMO laurel for a while and then it was like okay well trends are back up now what do we then it was high deductible health plans and 
you know, and then we kind of rested on that laurel and it was, which was really just cost shift to, you know, trying to create better consumers. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but, and yeah, you're right. It does, it does not have seemed to have been this constant quality improvement or constant iterative process. And I think you're right. If I think about it now, we do seem to be more in that mindset now that it, that it, that we have to, it's got to continuously evolve uh, now in, in how we're tackling these, these cost problems and um, uh, you know, provider engagement and, and partnering rather than beating one another over the head with, you know, at the negotiation table. Yeah, I think that's true. Certainly on the provider side, there's other areas where I see it as well. Disease management is one of my favorite over the years. It's sort of, I think it's been around for what I feels like 20 years, probably maybe slightly less than that. Who knows? But it's, it's one of those things that, uh, um, you know, I, I think has really become sort of this, you know, check the box. Well, everybody does disease management, so we'll just call that call that a draw. But I, I, I think in today's world, at least with that mindset, it sort of misses the point that there, there are always ways that you can try to figure out how do you treat people with diabetes and, and do that more efficiently and effectively and, and keep people healthier. Um, we should be driving toward that, and we should be talking about it and 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 really focused on that. Just given the that is one example of a disease that's that, that's very prevalent. So it's certainly become a mindset, I think, in, in our product organization. Uh, I think the, the one area where I would sort of advocate and sort of promote is to just, and I know a lot of the folks who listen to this are, um, are employers, is, um, is uh, I, I would just really encourage them to, um, to try to engage in uh, those types of discussions about what's new, what's different, why is this better? Um, and also when it comes to products like Anetna Whole Health of Connecticut, or I know there are other similar products, uh, uh, similar products that, that drive toward value out there. I, I think they're structured differently, but they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, they're aiming to create value. Um, that employers should really take a, a, a hard look and sort of say, okay, rather than just what, what my renewal is that's, that's facing me today, how do I take a longer term view and start to put into the place some strategies that would would make sense over a period of years and really start to help move the needle um, and make them an active participant in uh, you know sort of that uh, I guess nowadays virtual table of, of sitting down and, and getting all of the constituents involved. Um, I, I certainly would say the, the, the more active participation we could get from employers to sit down and have that discussion with us, with you, um, and, and with providers um, included, uh, it, the, the, the way that we make, we, we make progress on this is, is by all of us being at the table and working together. Good point, which is that you know, employers and frankly brokers and consultants can't just look to the carriers and the providers, the health insurance and the providers and say, you guys solve it. We, we've, we've got to be at the table uh, as well and take some accountability. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and again, I mean, notwithstanding what's going on in the world around us, when when you look at, and I think this is this is true for us, it's true for others. Um, you know, broad network products uh, still have the the vast majority of of membership. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not just true in Connecticut; it's true in in, in most markets. Um, so, really, I think the 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 engagement would be 
sort of from employers is to think through um, what is my longer term strategy to sort of control costs within my organization and ultimately you know drive the outcome for my future renewals not just not just the one that's that's the here and now and and what are the conversations that I should be having um, with with you um, you know with us uh, with our competitors and you know at, at, at times I'm sure there's opportunity to have that that conversation in conjunction with certain um, providers in their local area as well to figure out um, what does value mean to me um, in terms of healthcare is a huge spend for everybody um, and you know particularly in a in a post covid world as as some of the dynamics of the system um, start to start to shift and change a little bit um, and also candidly as, as some of their businesses have been shut down and um, it's you know that's that's another effect we hadn't talked about yet but i mean we're hearing from so many of our customers um who are financially challenged um mm. when is better than than now um as soon as you can to start sitting down and engaging in these conversations about what does value really mean in healthcare? yeah what's the phrase necessity is the mother of invention right i mean it, you're absolutely right if control and cost has been an issue for our clients for forever but it, never more than it is today um, because they are going through the financial challenges associated with this with this pandemic <clears throat> um, you know I think about it Duncan like if you're a really large employer to me there, there's a big challenge of deploying things down market that that large employers can do today that smaller employers can't so I'll, I'll, I'll just as an example or let me clarify like if you're the state of Connecticut, you can start building product around a, 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 a customized network around centers of excellence and bundled payments, right? Um, in my mind, the challenge for the carriers is to, 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 to somehow build product that you can deploy down market where you're leveraging those kinds of arrangements. And I know you, so you can't customize a network or maybe you can. I mean, maybe I should not be limiting our, our you know, our objectives here. But uh, for for a for a 120 employee employer around centers of excellence. But I, I think that you know, in my mind, when you talk about the ultimate the ultimate quality and use of data for evidence based medicine and elimination of waste, you're really getting to this concept of of, of a COE. Uh, and then ultimately bundled payments. And so, uh, wh what's your thought on that? What's Aetna's thought on that, particularly in 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 New England? It's a great question, and I I would say this: Look, we are fans of. There's no question that that we are supportive of trying to sort of um, drive this discussion forward and drive forward different ways of 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 looking at um, value-based care and how do you structure the right types of arrangements. Um, I'd say a couple things. Um, you know, we, we do have a number of, uh, of center of excellence or and or institutes of quality type of programs that have been out there for um, for a few years now, even available at, at smaller sizes. We are uh, uh, we are, I, I guess, growing the number of uh, of bundled payments that we do. Um, I would tend to agree with you that I think that that's one way that could be could be very effective. Um, the one thing I always try to point out, and I'm 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 almost positive you'll agree with this, is uh, when you talk about bundled payments, 
um, you have to be just very, very cognizant of how that appears to a, a consumer um, and how that would either help or, or sort of confuse them. Uh, and, and that's the confusion, obviously, that you want to avoid in terms of where they should access care. Um, and so one thing that we're trying to be very cognizant of as we come through this type of thing is uh, a continued focus on primary care and, and making sure that you, you know, um, that in its extreme form, I think the concern that you'd have with, with bundles is something like, we want you to go get your cardiac care over here with this provider, um, but you have a comorbid condition, you're also a diabetic, we want you to go there. And so we, we just want to design those things so that from a, a consumer's perspective, that becomes easy and, and, and that their, their primary care physicians are, are to a large degree aligned with that. Mm. So we're, we're trying to do things like that at the same time as continuing the strategy with our whole health product which isn't exactly bundles. Uh, it, it's more like alignment with specific specific physician groups and health systems so that there is sort of a clear, a, a accountability for the entire picture, the total cost of care, and B, sort of a, alignment in terms of where the referral patterns are going. So that from a consumer's perspective is, is relatively straightforward. It's why we like that. Mm. The goal really over time is, is, to, is to sort of bring bundled payments into uh, and marry those two concepts together. You're saying, you know, your your model is that it would be the primary care physician that's helping, that that's basically navigating the patient through the system and guiding them to that, you know, to those, if you will, centers of excellence or 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 where you're going to pay for value and get the best value and the best outcomes. Uh, the first time, <clears throat> because um, this might lead nicely into the into the other topic we wanted to cover, which is the the, the member experience and how complex our healthcare delivery system is, and some of the products out there, and insurance in general, and people are sick or injured, and it's an incredibly stressful time in their life, and a lot of them feel lost and like they're not getting they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They don't know if they should just listen to their primary care doctor. And if not, who do you listen to? And historically, Duncan, you, you, you know, I think we could all admit, and I worked on the carrier side for many years, that, you know, general 1-800, you know, customer service lines weren't really delivering any kind of help with navigation or, or uh, real issues or, or helping to avoid confusion. They maybe issue a new ID card or be able to tell somebody where they are in their deductible sat, satis, uh, satisfying their deductible, but it didn't really go beyond that. So, so long way of asking the question is, of, you know, what's Aetna doing around the member experience, simplifying it, giving support to members helping them find the right site of service, all of those things, navigation through this complex and sometimes fragmented healthcare system? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's it's one I'm particularly passionate about, um, given my my last role at Aetna was, was in our, our consumer space. And uh, a few years ago, we, we actually sort of st started to note that, uh, you know, I think you and I had some some pre-discussion on this, like the NPS scores in our industry, this is kind of what you're alluding to. They, they, they've never been great, but I also don't think, and I, I don't think this is an Aetna statement as much as it is sort of an industry statement. I don't think this was an industry that historically has necessarily paid a lot of attention to that 
in the way that today's consumer, as, as all of us have evolved as consumers, you know, particularly in the last 15 years or so, it's been such a dramatic change in the way that we, we all view being a consumer and the way that we all behave as one. And I think that that's really important to note that in, in our industry, it was, it was time to hit the gas pedal and figure out how, how do we start to address some of this and so that the NPS scores are not in the negative. Duncan, just for our listeners who aren't aware, NPS, the net promoter score is, is what we're talking about when you say NPS, just to make sure everyone's on the same page. Typical insurance guy using a lot of acronyms and assuming everybody knows them. <laughs> you know, in, in 2016, uh, and this is just, 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 just one example, but we, we made a decision then, despite what we had already done with sort of regular customer service and concierge level service, which we've been doing for quite a few years now, um, we made a decision in 2016 to, I would say, throw away everything we had ever done before and kind of restart over with what should be the model of the future. And this is where we came up with our Aetna One Advocate model, or as of course, getting back to the acronym thing, we call it A1A. This was not sort of a, hey, let's take our concierge model and tweak it a little and put a new name on it. This was a wholesale, like we got a whole bunch of uh, people working on this who were not part of concierge. We got some who were, to, to sort of inform that experience. Uh, we had a number of folks come in from outside the industry to truly build a new model and figure out, I mean, the, 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 the gentleman who runs uh, Aetna One Advocate today actually came to us from Nike and, uh, you know, really sort of lending support, kind of ran their customer service and sort of came and came to work for us and gave us some, some very sort of fresh and fresh thinking and new ideas in terms of how might we structure something like this in a healthcare environment. And I think it's important because that model really is, is intended to be the polar opposite of the call center environment you described, where it's, you're just calling in, it's very transactional, you know, in a lot of ways it's volume based, you're trying to hurry people off the phone so that you can get to the next call and meet certain metrics. And it's just, you know, it, it, it's a factory. This was kind of the opposite being a small team of people that's dedicated to a very finite number of, of members. And it's the same team of people every single time. And you'd have, you know, uh, you'd, you'd have both of your, your customer service as well as your clinical people co-located and physically together so that it, it's essentially just sort of turning around in my chair to, to talk to one of the nurses and pull them into a conversation with a member with, with something going on. And bring up this model, not to say that we've replaced everything we do with this model. Um, that's certainly not true. We do have quite a few people uh, in this model. I, I think in rough numbers, it's, it's, it's probably like a million people. But the, uh, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that what we've done is learned a lot by doing this. And what we're doing is taking a lot of the learnings from that and bringing it over into some of the other more standard models that are involved with a lot of our products. Because what you end up seeing when you, when, when you really try an entirely new model, a model that focuses not on transactions, but on building trust and familiarity with people. And so that at that moment, and, and we've been talking about this our whole careers, right? The, the, the holy grail in our business is engagement. We talk about it all the time, but we always talk about the ways we engage people. But the conversation that becomes more of a challenge is how do you actually engage people? Because they are hard to engage because over the course of our lifetimes, all they've ever had with you is a, a transactional relationship. And let's face it, to your point, like when they called in historically, um, it was not a particularly enjoyable experience. It was one that they just wanted to get over, get the information that they wanted and get over with. And 
and get back to their, their regular lives. So it's trying to change that into a, a relationship formed on trust so that when there is something going on from a clinical perspective and you do need engagement with that member, you've got a whole lot better of an opportunity to do that. And that's exactly what we've seen, as you might expect, over the first few years of doing this. We've built much more trust. Satisfaction scores have, have gone up considerably. There is uh, an, an NPS-like score or net promoter-like score. It's, it's not measured exactly the same way, but it's very similar. That's in the 75% range, which is, is sort of mind-blowing when you consider where our industry has been historically. At one point, Duncan, I think as an industry, and by no means was I picking on Aetna here, it was, to your earlier point, an industry-wide sort of issue uh, and, and I think that net promoter scores were if not uh, negative, low single digits on, on average at one point. So 75, for those who don't know, is, is an incredibly good achievement for net promoter score. Yeah, yeah. It's something we're very proud of. But I think, again, I, if you talk to anyone on this team, and I think this is the right thing, the right mindset, it's, it's truly iterative. We want to continue to be better at it tomorrow than we are today in terms of the, the satisfaction scores, but also the number of people we're engaging with is higher. And, and as a result, you're, you're able to sort of, you know, to a large degree, you know, impact quality and cost uh, to a greater degree than, than you did before. So again, a lot of those learnings proving very helpful uh, across the entire block of business. I love that. Uh, the idea of, you know, you're saying that there's a direct positive correlation between engagement and trust. And you're right. If you, if you think of that word trust, even two years ago, it probably still is an issue today in general across the board of, you know, you don't think of people trusting their insurance company, right? And, uh, and I'm glad to hear you guys are tackling it in that way of how, how, do we, how do we build trust? And I don't think you do it by putting a, a cost comparison tool on a website. It, it, look, healthcare is, it's not like buying a refrigerator. I, I, I really don't think we should be leaving our members to their own devices on a, on a website to kind of find the right site of service and to be consumers. I, they need help. We need help. It's, a, it's, it's an overwhelmingly stressful experience because it's your health and your well-being. And so, and I, and, and so I, I love this idea of the, uh, the, the Aetna One Advocate. Duncan, wh where are those Aetna One Advocate teams located? Yeah, we have a, a few different spots across the country. As you grow in, in that type of thing, it, it's helpful to have people in different time zones closer to, to certain types of customers. But yeah, we've got them in Ohio, North Carolina, and Arizona at the moment. And there are some similar teams that, that, that are doing some quite similar things in a number of our other locations as well. So, so they are spread out. Um, obviously, the other reason you spread out, I think it's fairly topical today, is just from a business continuity perspective. You want to make sure that, you know, in, there's something going on that means a location has an issue and needs to close that, that you can load balance somewhere, which is clearly not something you want to do when you're aligning small teams with a small number of members, but you need to be able to do it in, in, in the instance of, of something going on where you had to. I just had a brilliant idea, and I can cut you in on this deal if it, if it, uh, if it goes anywhere. Instead of a net promoter score, maybe we should be focusing on a, on a net trust score. Yeah, I honestly think that that would be a measure that would be um, particularly helpful. I, I think to a certain degree, if you look through the way net promoter scores actually measured and the number of different questions that are required in order to sort of technically meet the definition, it, it probably does get close to that. But I, I, I definitely love the point. You know, also building on your point from before about, you know, not just putting a tool out on a website, 
I think that it's fair to say as an industry, we've been very guilty of that. Um, this was also something in my last role we were, uh, last role at Aetna, we were, we were very focused on, um, which was kind of like disease management I mentioned earlier. You look at industry websites, it was sort of like whoever has the most features must have the best site. But when you actually look at consumer behavior, consumers couldn't have cared less that you had 250 things that you could do on your website. They were only using six of them and they were only using two of them in large numbers. So really the thinking on that fundamentally had to shift, right? It had to shift to um, how do I take the things that people actually use and make those things incredibly easy and simplify them so that the information that people want, they don't have to dig for. It's just presented to them at a point in time where it's going to be relevant for them. And it, it sounds so simple, but th there's so many other industries that have done a better job historically of doing that. Um, and, and that's why we kind of sort of scrapped our, our, our older strategy, which was a very effective one on a relative basis at the time. It's no disrespect to the, the strategy, but, but as you know, as I mentioned earlier in the consumer space and particularly on the technology side, things are advanced so quickly. I think it's imperative for our industry to do our part to keep up and make sure that, you know, when a consumer uses one of our um, either web or mobile experiences, um, it doesn't feel like it's, it's some sort of an antiquated version of something uh, from, from years ago, but it, it feels sort of consistent with other experiences that they're used to in their day-to-day -day lives. Which, which is, it, it, we live in an app world, Right. I mean, that, that's what our day to day lives are really kind of all about these days for the vast majority of us. So the the uh, the Aetna One Advocate, is there a way for is there an app? I mean, are, are, are the members who have access to an A1A team, um, do, do they can they engage via via an app or, or digitally in that way? Yeah, so certainly from the app, they can, uh, it's just kind of tap to call. And that obviously is, is sprinkled in a number of places where it would be convenient to do that. Um, I think that, that looking ahead, there's probably other ways that we could, we could start, to, um, start to meaningfully engage. I know one of the areas that we're looking to really um, um, sort of expand upon but get right is, is sort of chat type features. Um, and I would acknowledge, you know, if I'm going to... Um, you know, if I'm going to call uh, Verizon about my um, mobile phone coverage, right? I'm probably not going to call them. I'm probably going to chat with them. And even within chat, there's varying levels of it, right? There's the chat that many of us are familiar with today, which in, in most instances means you chat with someone. As soon as that discussion is over, you've got what you need. You close the box and it kind of goes away. Um, but there's also asynchronous chat, which means that you know, you can save the history, or if you leave in the middle of a conversation and come back, you can pick up where you left off and, and somebody else will engage. And those are the types of things that, um, that are in the works to sort of add to that type of experience um, so that it feels like it's very modern and current and fresh for people. So that it's very, very easy for them to interact, as I mentioned in the beginning, sort of in the way that they want to interact. Um, you got to understand people's communication preferences if you're, if you're going to, um, to, to, to really have a shot at, at, at engaging with them. I mean, people, people will ignore phone calls and, they're ignore, and they'll ignore emails, but generally they don't ignore texts, text messages, right? Yeah, that's right. One yeah. of the other things I find fascinating is that, you know, I, I think a lot of folks become like the buzzword 
of the last few years in our industry, everyone wants to talk about like, oh, we're omni-channel, we can communicate in a number of different ways. And I'm like, that's great, but it also matters what the communication is and how it's served up to somebody. Um, and that's, you know, it's this notion of behavioral economics, which is another buzzword, but like behind that, it sort of means that, you know, uh, you and I might both go for an unnecessary emergency room visit, but if somebody reaches out to tell us we shouldn't do that, I may be more motivated by loss aversion. Like, Duncan, do you know that you could have saved money if you had just done this instead? And I might be like, wow, I should have done that. Next time I will. But that type of, um, you know, that type of messaging may not resonate with you at all. Something that's, that's kind of humorous might resonate with you. And, and so there's, you, I think beyond understanding what channel somebody wants to be communicated with, you also need to understand what method of communication is most likely to result in them actually taking action. And for that, you need to be actually structured in a way where you can sort of measure and, you know, try and track these things down to an individual level, which is, again, something we've been working for several years on and, and have started started doing in, in, in fairly meaningful ways. That's pretty awesome. T- tailoring not just the way you're delivering the message, but the message itself to, to almost the, the, the personality or the motivations of the individual. Pretty, that's going deep. Duncan, uh, um, we have to talk a little bit about pharmacy costs and, and what you guys are doing through your, um, you know, the, the CVS health relationship that you have. Uh, uh, and, you know, when you talk about cost control and trends and tamping down trends and getting our arms around this, you, you know, you have to include pharmacy in the conversation. So what, what's that in CVS health doing differently or doing to kind of help consumers with this outrageous cost of some uh, of some of the medications out there it's uh it's a great and very challenging question and as i'm sure you know we we could probably do a nine to ten hour podcast and, and still only feel like we uh we scratched the surface of that that said I, I i thought it might be interesting perhaps if i take a little bit of a different angle on this one and go down the road of oncology if that makes sense to you uh there's obviously there's a, yeah. there's a it's 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 such a prevalent diagnosis uh, for for virtually every group. Yeah. Um, certainly, any group of of, of any size, you're you're going to see that. And these are drugs that are, are are clearly very very expensive as well. But I think this example will also help to it'll help to illustrate sort of the types of things that we're doing and the thinking that we have. It also ties back into as I've mentioned a couple of times now, sort of figuring out how to get the right people at the table and sit down and, and partner um, uh, with, with folks to, to drive progress. So what we've been doing broadly is um, working with um, providers, so health systems, physician groups, and so forth, who are in oncology. And, uh, you know, we've been going sort of provider by provider and state by state, and we're already doing a bunch of this in Connecticut, where we'll partner with them so that we can sort of set up um, our own sort of CVS own system capabilities where they have the ability to get prior authorization kind of authorized instantaneously. It may not sound like much in today's day and age. I feel like it doesn't because pretty much everything you or I might do online, as soon as we do it, we can go in and see that it's done. And, and everything in our world is, is, is instantaneous. But in the world of prior auth in oncology, uh, and in a, and a number of other things in our business that that is not the case. 
there are still wait times. There's several days um, that can go by. And what we realized is, 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 is a number of things. That if we brought genomic testing into this so that we could try to figure out which of the variety of, of, of drugs is the most appropriate for this specific individual, and we could do the prior authorization instantaneously so that there wouldn't be, you know, a potential, you know, few days in between when uh, the oncologist uh, prescribed the drug and, and, and when the patient actually starts taking it, is that you could actually move the needle in terms of, of, in terms of morbidity. Um, which is obviously clearly very meaningful from an outcomes perspective. We would also tie this together systemically with a lot of the, uh, the NCCN guidelines, the National Center for Cancer Network. I'm going to get that slightly wrong, but it's, it's, it's the National Authority on, uh, you know, the latest evidence-based guidelines for cancer treatment. So what we're really trying to do is figure out in this scenario, how do we, how do we get the right testing done up front? so that we're not sort of trying the wrong drug and then having to change, which is wasteful and also potentially causes delays in, in terms of a progression of a patient's treatment. Um, and so in that way, that helps to, to sort of drive some amount of saving. Um, and at the same time, to the degree that you can sort of move the needle in terms of speed with which that you're getting patients um, to take these drugs and, and, and sort of comply with evidence-based guidelines, that also improves the treatment and, and improves the outcomes over time. So I, I just like this particular example as a way that we've really, again, figured out how do we go and sit down with with our really good, you know, and, and longtime provider partners and figure out how we can do some things together that would, would start to move the needle there. I, I, I'll add that at the moment, it, it's not every type of cancer. Um, right now, it, it's breast cancer, um, colorectal, and lung cancer. But since we've seen success with this and we've seen this growing in terms of provider, um, um, you, you know, provider usage of it on a more widespread basis across the country, um, you'll start to see that continue to expand. Just to kind of take that one step further, and by the way, there's landscapers outside and horrible timing, but um, for me, it's comforting anyway. It's just a sign of so, sort of normalcy when there's, when the landscapers are out cutting lawn and trimming, trimming the hedges. So, um, Anyway, I uh, apologize for that, but it, it's almost like we could take that further, and maybe you guys are already doing that, and, and, and use this pay-for-value, pay-for-outcome model on some of these high-cost specialty drugs. Like, why, why not, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We are, in fact, doing that on a number of different areas, and, and that does continue to, to expand. You know, I get the, the point in my mind is that, the, and particularly when you talk about something like cancer is that, you know, yeah, there's some really, really expensive drugs out there, but to the, but, but they also save lives. And I, I guess what we need to do is get to, and the same thing we're doing on the medical side is get to this idea of, you know, what we want to do is get it right the first time and eliminate waste. And, you know, because if you spent, if you spend the money to, to deliver a treatment quickly to your point, um, with a, a, the right outcome, a good outcome, uh, without waste, then, you know, you're actually saving money in the long term by um, avoiding, you know, complications or extended therapies that, that maybe shouldn't have happened in the first place. I guess maybe that's the way I'm thinking of it as well, is that we do have to remember that it's often it's, it's money well spent if it's done correctly. I completely agree. It's, um, it's interesting how many times 
over the course of a, a career, you can note that just, you know, uh, if, if you really find ways to do the right thing, um, good results actually follow. People get healthier. It saves money. It, it's sort of what everybody's, everybody in that scenario is, is happier than they otherwise would have been. So it's, it's truly about trying to figure out how do we continue to be better with this? What do you guys do about the, you know, I'll call it a hyperinflationary drug, these drugs that, you know, all overnight, they all of a sudden they go up a thousand percent in, in, in cost. How do we, how do we protect consumers against that kind of thing? Yeah. You know, I, I think there's a number of ways that you, you have to focus on that. Some is just sort of, you know, building into your contracts sort of price caps uh, so that they, they can't sort of, make those adjustments um, to a degree, even if they want to. So I know that, that that's one thing that, that's proliferated. The other thing is, is, is probably, um, you know, much more of a, a boring answer, but a real one is just managing a formulary and, and, and sort of essentially saying, if, if you're going to, if you're going to do that stuff, we're going to, we're going to kind of move away and, and, and sort of encourage something else. That's to the degree you can. I mean, you, you, you can drive some stuff like that, um, uh, you know, with, with a lot of, you know, either insulin or, or diabetes medications. Obviously, there are other scenarios where that becomes more problematic in a mm. in a brand name that, that that's under patent or what have you. But that's where we're really trying up front to to figure out how do we how do we do different types of contracts so that so that um, employers and consumers alike in, in high deductible plans are not sort of afflicted with these types of, of very large increases. Uh, real quick, do you, do you think the, the, the rebate, I'm going to call it the rebate game, you know, uh, the, this idea of rebates gets some attention politically, um, it has some attention politically now, and, and people are kind of looking at this whole idea of rebates, you know, uh, big, big, big price tag for the PBM to get some money back and maybe or maybe not kind of share it at the end of the day with the plan sponsor or the consumer. Like, do you think that that whole game, as I'm calling it, is in jeopardy, uh, that it's going to be, you know, maybe fast forward five years that rebates might not be part of the equation or be a completely different part of the equation? Do you have thoughts on that? I do. Uh, I guess what I would say is I, I feel like in today's political environment, pretty much anything is on the table. Uh, you could argue anything's in jeopardy. Um, but, uh, but, but that said, you know, re- rebates is comp- a complicated topic. And I, I think if you ask your average consumer how they felt about that, most of them, at least at a point in time, would have said, you know, it feels like that's just exclusively profit that's going back to, um, to somebody that's not me. And we should put an end to it. Let's get rid of these things and just just not have rebates anymore. Um, I, I I think that the challenge that you have with that number of challenges, but the biggest one in my mind is 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 kind of uh, on the Medicare side, where you know the, the the rebates are a factor that sort of brings down the the, the overall cost of the plan. And so you're you're sort of then sort of saying to people like folks who are on Medicare or Medicare Advantage plans, like this is going to cost you less, but then the overall cost of the plan goes up. And and so there's some offsetting effects there um, that I think could have unintended consequences in in terms of, you know, who it impacts negatively. And it's probably just important to, like like I have said for many years, um, uh, for for most issues in our business, if you think you can solve it in one sentence, uh, you don't understand the problem. Um, 
So I, I think there's so many things that can happen in our business if you do certain drastic things or you move too quickly without considering the unintended consequences that could negatively impact somebody. And I always say, keep in mind that if you negatively impact someone in our business, it potentially impacts uh, you know, their, their access to either medicine uh, in the instance of rebates or, or to just care in general. So we, we have to be very, very careful about this and sort of walk through what are the potential outcomes and consider all of the constituents. But I think, you know, from a, a CVS perspective, we've been very clear that, you know, we've been uh, in many instances, it, it is just sort of point of sale rebates are available at certain size employers. Employers have a decision to make in terms of what to do with rebates and, you know, how much of a share or, or not share they, they have available. So we've tried to be very, very transparent about this, this particular issue because I think it's, it's just sort of this, this widely misunderstood thing that just this notion of rebates is just pure profit that's going back to a, a PBM, which, which, as you know, is, is, is just not the case. Uh, last question, because uh, I, I know we've taken up a lot of your time, Doug, and I really appreciate it. But I, I'm coming back to this idea. Uh, I'm, I'm tying the, far, the you know, I'm still on pharmacy, but going back to the Aetna One Advocate. And I wonder, will the, will the Aetna One Advocate team help a member find, you know, coupons and, and uh, copay assistance for expensive drugs? Is that one of the services that they'll do, one of the ways that they help navigate members and help members save money? Yeah, I've actually had specific conversations with uh, people. One of the resources that each of the team has is access to a pharmacist. Um, and when somebody is sort of a, a new patient, um, a new diabetic that is, you know, taking insulin for the first time or, or doing any number of things for the first time, they will oftentimes wrap in the pharmacist um, in order to engage with that member uh, uh, with them um, and start to explain like what, what are some of the options and particularly if affordability is an issue, um, they'll either talk to them about that there or go and do some some research and get back to that member with some additional information with the types yeah. of things that you're asking for. The other thing I'd say, and I don't think we've, we've, we we haven't hit on this yet, and, and perhaps I, I, I should at least hit on this quickly, is that uh, I'm sure you're hearing a lot um, in the media um, over the last uh, probably, you know, 18 months or so about this notion of these CVS health hubs. And so this is sort of, you know, obviously, as, as you know, in Connecticut, there's a lot of CVS locations. Many of them have minute clinics, and then sort of this is a, a much broader than a minute clinic um, concept of, of of what will be available in in the, the the future CVS store or the future health hub. Part of that is a health concierge who, uh, just given the, the nature of our connection with uh, with CVS, will, will will be directly connected. So you you not only could have that type of an interaction with a with with a health concierge or an advocate, I guess, on the telephone. As, as, as your team or, or, or via some other channel, if, if that's what you prefer. But there's also this notion of this, this brick and mortar I can walk in live and experience this and engage with them. There's obviously a pharmacist there, seeing increase, increasing amounts of data um, that we're able to put in front of pharmacists in CVS stores so that at that point in time where there's a patient who presents to fill a prescription, if there's some other need or unmet need or set of things going on, that there's an opportunity for either a pharmacist engagement, a minute clinic nurse, um, somebody else from the, the health hub side of it, um, that there's just so many different, uh, uh, I guess, points of opportunity 
um, to, to kind of go beyond sort of the, the old fashioned, uh, you know, the people available on the telephone. So I, I think what mm. you're going to find moving forward from us is that, that, you know, people will engage in, in ways that, that they want to engage and where they want to engage. And then we will be trying to, you know, as, as we talked about sort of truly across that entire ecosystem, build trust with people so that when there are things that are, 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 are sort of, whether they're gaps in care or whether they're just sort of, you know, things going on clinically with somebody that, that, that need, need more focus, um, that we're able to engage with that person in, in any number of different, um, in a number of different settings. That's great. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, the hubs, I guess I look at that as maybe a, a, a built-in, you know, near-site clinic, right? That, that and, and you almost, you know, it's almost leans toward the old, you know, uh, staff model, <laughs> you know, staff model HMO, right? Where, where the insurance is delivering, really kind of delivering the care site, site of service, right? Am I thinking about that incorrectly or? I think that's the right way to think about it. I, I guess I would just add that, you know, the, the way to think about it in some ways might be complementary primary care. So mm. we're, we're not necessarily looking to, um, to replace primary care. Um, Got it. But, but every, everybody knows that, 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 that there's a general shortage. There aren't enough primary care physicians. The ones that exist are very strapped. Um, and I think part of this strategy is to essentially say to them and, and truly partner with some of our, I've mentioned this a few times now, figure out how do we partner, but partner with the provider um, systems in local areas to, to essentially say, um, hey, listen, let's get primary care physicians back to doing the things that they went to medical school to, to, to train for. And let's not have them doing the very sort of simple repeatable things that don't need someone at their, their, their level always to be, to be doing. We talked about this earlier in terms of um, value-based care. Uh, it, it's not very difficult to sort of make that connection that if, if you start to sort of engage in that way and partner in that way, with um, organizations that we have accountable care relationships with, um, that that there are ways that when we partner together, you can drive down the cost of, of, of certain types of services and therefore create value for employers. So I think that's really an area that you'll see proliferate. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I've never intended for something like this to be a commercial for Aetna, but if I made one plug, it would be that you're going to see more of the value of CVS and Aetna together manifesting itself that way in partnership with providers um, so that we can deliver something to, to employers that's, um, that's, that's a significant incremental value to, 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 to whatever existed in, in the, uh, uh, the carrier world prior to. Yeah, pro probably a great way for, for you to wrap wrap up your session with us, actually. Uh, um, but wait, before I let you go, um, don't know if you know this, but we always end every episode with uh, um, five or six rapid-fire questions. So sure. uh, you ready for that? Uh, fire away. First answer that comes to mind. Don't, don't waste any time, okay? Cats or dogs? Dogs. Favorite band? It's almost easier for me to think of least favorite. I, I guess I'd go with... Um, Probably um, Vampire Weekend. Okay. Who would your least favorite be since you mentioned it? <laughs> Imagine Dragons. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a real band or not, but we'll go with it. Uh, if you had one superpower, <laughs> what would it be? Uh, one superpower. I guess I'd probably like to fly. If you weren't doing what you do now, what would you be doing? It's an incredibly difficult question. I would, 
if I wasn't doing what I would do now, I, I, I'm sure in some way I would be connected to the healthcare system. In what variety, that would be tough to say, but the things that, that really fascinate me are, um, uh, are, are really anything that moves the needle on the consumer side in particular for, um, for quality of care. I equally could be out of the industry entirely and be like a, a, a mountain climbing guide. Uh, I have to say I like that answer better. Uh, and lastly, our theme this year, Duncan at One Digital, is being bold. So I want to ask you, what does that mean to you? What does being bold mean to you? It means not, I guess it means a couple of things, not being satisfied ever uh, with the status quo and not letting your vision of how we should change things or shape the future necessarily be too persuaded by the past. Awesome. Thank you. Duncan Stewart, thank you again for joining us on the podcast today. I really, really do appreciate you taking the time with everything going on right now to uh, to talk to our listeners about what Aetna is doing, not just in response to COVID-19, but, um, you know, what you're doing to support your, um, to your employer uh, groups and your members and all of your stakeholders. So really appreciate that. Everyone, if you like this episode, leave a review. And as always, make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. When you subscribe, you'll be the first to know when the next episode drops, and you certainly don't want to miss any episodes. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. This has been yet another episode of Friends with Employee Benefits and HR. Bye.